HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, yuzakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is so mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my crew guests. And my guest today is Elizabeth Sando, who already joined us 10 times and shared her truly deep insight into traditional Japanese food culture. Elizabeth is a food writer and Japanese cooking instructor based in Tokyo, and she has lived in Japan for over 50 years. She runs a culinary art program called A Taste of Culture, which offers a great opportunity for non-Japanese people to explore Japanese culture through its food. And Elizabeth also, uh, is also author of six cookbooks, including the award-winning Washoku, Recipes for, from Japanese Kitchen, Gibo, Recipes and Stories from the Japan's Tohoku and Kansha, celebrating Japan's vegan and vegetarian traditions. And today's topic is kombucha. Kombucha means dried things. And these are essential items in the traditional Japanese pantry, but rarely receive the attention they truly deserve. So today we'll discuss what kombucha is, what, why they are so precious, how you can use them, uh, which is totally uh, foolproof, and Elizabeth's favorite kombucha recipes, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan Needs Soup available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So if you haven't, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write the review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Elizabeth Ando. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back again. Yeah, so it's uh, we had a hiatus of about two years. Um, yeah. Due to COVID. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, how you how have you been for the last 
crazy uh, time. <laughs> busy, busy doing all sorts of things, mainly online rather than in person. And uh, little by little, Japan is uh, looking to open up again uh, to visitors coming, uh, which is good news, I think. Um, but it's been a it's been a long haul. Um, it's been an opportunity, though, for a lot of people to get into the kitchen um, and start making food that they perhaps would have been too busy to bother with before. And um, I really uh, appreciate the fact that you let me choose the topic this time as kambutsu, which is one of my favorite um, set of items in a, in a Japanese kitchen. Um, they, As you pointed out, they rarely get the uh, acclaim that they really deserve. Um, ancient, but also modern and um, invaluable, I think. Mm, right. And also, I mean, I, when I grew up in Japan, I didn't even think of them, but they are kind of quietly secret weapons. So I look forward right. to learning more about them today. I, I think so. Um, right. They, I, I think for people who have never looked at them or wander through um, an Asian grocery store and and see them, they wonder why people would ever want to um, use them. They're not particularly attractive. Um, they're dried, shriveled. Um, most of them come in a sealed package, so you don't even have a sense of the aroma. Um, and sometimes the instructions that are on the back of it are not immediately um, understandable. It, it seems almost too simple. Most of them need to be soaked uh, various lengths of time. Um, and some of them, the soaking liquid can be uh, also consumed. Others, they can't. Um, mm. And they make a whole bunch of wonderful foods. Right. So let's uh, start from the beginning because I think the majority okay. of our listeners have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> okay. So, so first of all, what is kombucha by definition and what is the history of kombucha? Um, by definition, it's a dried thing. Um, it covers a wide range of products um, sourced from various different terrain, from land and from sea. Uh, some of them are animal products, some of them are not. Um, the history is sort of interesting. The first um, written record was in the Manyoshu, which is a collection of poetry, uh, 760 AD, I believe is the date, um, and is often uh, quoted as the first written record for a lot of things. Um, but truth be told, they were probably consumed uh, prehistory, the Jomon period, which goes back to 14,000 BC. Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing that probably was a natural phenomenon. Items got dried. And with the drying, the flavor became intensified. And also spoilage was retarded. So in the days long before refrigeration, or any kind of uh, swift transportation where you could uh, easily uh, obtain foods from an entirely different um, uh, terrain, um, kombucha became a way of ensuring you had something to eat um, year-round. And uh, it didn't really um, matter um, that it was immediately available or not. It could be preserved for a fair amount of time. Mm, right, and you mentioned the Mayoshu, that's one of those right. 
you know, titles that you always remember when you read a textbook <laughs> as, a, you know, one of those uh, Japanese students. But right. uh, I heard the first uh, example of kombucha as dried rice, I mean, cooked and then re- dehydrated so that right. you can just carry around and on your journey to somewhere near right. far. And that's why, you know, all the war fields, they, the soldiers used to carry Hoshi-e, I I think, was the name that was given to it. And um, indeed, it also becomes more lightweight because as something becomes dehydrated, the water in it, uh, the moisture in it is what makes it heavy. So it became lightweight, um, less likely to spoil, and could be revived or resuscitated, um, softened, uh, and consumed when you needed it, wherever you were. Um, so it's truly, in some sense, a, a, a almost a prehistoric um, convenience food. Mm, yeah, it might be useful for airplane traveling. <laughs> so. Well, I don't know. I, I, I think uh, it might be worth revisiting that for um, kinai shoku, for the food that's served on airplanes. Um, mm. There's something to be said for um, uh, properly uh uh, softened uh, kombucha being brought back to um, actually not their original stage, but um, this more intense, flavorful um, uh, item. I often, um, when I'm talking about kombucha, we'll have people think about the difference between a fresh tomato and a dried tomato, or a fresh apricot and a dried apricot. Um, they might both be wonderful but they're probably not used in the same way. And the dried item, whether it's a tomato or an apricot or or whatever, is going to be very intensely flavored, uh, much more so than the fresh item was originally. Mm, Right. Yeah, so another example I heard uh, during the Edo period, um, there's, you know, Japan didn't trade with anybody in right. theory, but there is a Nagasaki that's the only port. And there was a big port to export dried abalone and shark fin mm. and all those expensive items. So it's not just, you know, uh, some daily item uh, dried and shrunk. There right. are some fancy items as well. So kombucha can be diverse. Uh, yes. Thank you for reminding me and, and everybody else. Indeed, and for ceremonial purposes as well, um, very often dried uh, goods were, were placed um, uh, to show respect for them. Um, they were extremely important in kitchens before modern um, times because they could be kept for um, a long period of time, and because they could be um, brought back to life, if you will, uh, whenever you needed them. Mm. Right, and also I think uh, kombucha re- reflect Japanese mindset to preserve everything because it's yes. a small country and it's been very poor up until you know recent centuries. So. Um, yeah, it's just a mindset where you dry or ferment something available has to be kept. So kombucha is as important right. as fermented items. Um, indeed, I remember the first time I saw a kidiboshi daikon, which is the shavings of, of dried daikon radish um, that were being made. And um, very much impressed upon me that nothing went to waste. Um, 
when daikon were harvested and they were perhaps bruised, um, you would peel them because you wanted the inner part of the daikon to cook. Uh, the peels never went to waste. They could always be dried um, and used in a number of other uh, dishes. So I, I think probably kiriboshi was my first personal encounter um, with uh, a kombutsu that would do double duty, if you will, or multitask. It could produce a flavorful broth when it was being um, softened, and it could also be cooked as a vegetable, uh, either on its own or mixed with a number of other um, items. Mm, right, that's another beauty of it. So multitasking is possible. So we'll discuss those the details, but um, right. um, I know you are very passionate passionate about kombucha, and um, yes. but. Uh, is uh, why do you think it's valuable? Kombucha is valuable because it's uh, so handy. It's always available in your pantry. Or why? Why do you think it's so valuable? Well, uh, personally, today for me, it's um, my go-to when I don't get a chance to go shopping. <laughs> um, I always know that I've got something that I can put together uh, for a meal. Uh, all I have to do is open the drawer that I have dedicated to most of my kombutsu. Um, what you need, by the way, is a cool, dry, and dark um, space, and it could be almost anywhere. Uh, and for me, it's not necessarily in the kitchen. My backup kombutsu is actually, um, my kitchen is fairly small, is in another location, but it's also cool and dark and dry. Um, and that way I know I can... And have it whenever I need it. Mm, or maybe you can smell a nice shiitake mushroom smell when you sleep yeah. or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Right. Yeah. So Elizabeth, you, you you say in a previous conversation you said kombuts is losing popularity in Japan uh, despite its valuable nature. So why do you think kombuts is not used as much as before by the Japanese people? I think um, there are possibly two reasons. Um, one is because um, there's really no advertising and nobody has started an Instagram account to, to, to tout how cute and wonderful these little dried darlings can be. Um, and there's a lot of competition for other convenience foods um, that are available in the supermarket. I think most large supermarkets in Japan will have sort of the basics. They will have this kiriboshi daikon, the dried um, daikon radish. They'll have hijiki, which is a sea vegetable. They'll have wakame, uh, which is another sea vegetable. Um, but perhaps they won't have um, many other varieties. And also cooking shows today in Japan are not focusing on it. Uh, there's nobody that's really out there trying to popularize um, them. And younger people, um, unless they have an example of a, a mother or a grandmother, perhaps, who has been using them before, may not be familiar with how to use them properly. Um, so there's sort of all sorts of combined reasons, I think, why they've become less popular. Uh, certainly when I first came to Japan in the 1960s, um, every neighborhood also had specialty stores for kombutsu. Um, those stores had everything from dried beans um, to dried vegetables and also dried um, sea creatures. Um, 
that were there. Um, probably in the last 10 years or so, most of those stores have um, disappeared, certainly as independent stores. Um, there are a few purveyors, um, Tomizawa is, is one of them, um, that have a lot of kombucha for sale, but they, um, again, they don't come with explanations and, and nobody seems to be out there trying to make them more popular. Mm, right. Yeah, somebody has to make the packaging or some other yeah. know, things sexier for kombucha. Because I, th- I think so, yeah. Right, because the value is definitely there. And uh, I mean, if you're just throwing one piece of kombucha for your dashi, you're a hero of the evening. <laughs> I, I'm not kind of not exaggerating because that happened yeah. to me. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah by the way, you mentioned Tomiza. I'm not associated with them, but there is a, it's a big, uh, I think, online Grocery right. website. They are, and most of the uh, department store food halls um, in Japan, uh, they'll have a small section um, for their things. It's sort of an, an independent shop within the larger one. And um, uh, certainly, when I'm when I'm looking for something uh, less ordinary, um, that would be where I would first. Um, look, there are also a few independent uh, sort of artisanal producers of um, kombutsu, but they're very local and very specific to certain products. Um, There are a number of specialty stores for katsubushi, for kombu, um, for dried beans, for dried grains. Um, But they're there aren't the kinds of stores that there used to be uh, when I first came to Japan, which were well-stocked, uh, multi-purpose um, kombutsu the, the stores that specialized in, in kombutsu. Mm, right. And then we tend to, now, the tone of uh, our conversation is like right. kombutsu is dying, you know, it's very sad. But uh, actually, among chefs, their right. power never declined, and uh, all top chefs are like really fighting for the top quality kombu, um, shiitake, all those things. So it's, it's not, it. yeah. It's so it's a wholesale level. Uh, the value is there, but the consumer level uh, is kind of that, that, that's a good distinction. I'm glad you made it. Um, that's true. I think for the the ordinary consumer and and the home cook, it might be um, a little extra effort to be able to source um, top quality things. Um, But I hope people will give it a go and maybe they'll be intrigued uh, when they're finished listening to this podcast um, (laughs) and uh, want to give it a go and try a couple of dishes made with uh, kombutsu. Right. Okay. So we'll take a quick break here. And when you come back, we'll discuss how you can actually use different kinds of delicious composites. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. 
Coin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the Welsh natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Coin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit coin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats on Heritage Radio Network, HRN. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, and my guest today is Elizabeth Ando, a food writer and cookbook author and Japanese cooking instructor uh, based in Tokyo. So let's talk about actual kombuks items and how we can use them. So um, so there are mainly two types of kombuksu. One is to make stock and other one is to be cooked into dishes. And also you mentioned they can be both. Right. So... Could you tell us about them? Um, well, the ones that are primarily for stock, the first thing that comes to mind is kombu, uh, kelp. And they're all different varieties. And we did um, quite, uh, talked about it quite a bit uh, in a previous um, episode. Um, and depending upon the kind of water that you have access to, the kind of kombu you use is going to be... Um, preferred. Uh, here in the Tokyo area where I am, uh, something called Hidaka Kombu is the preferred. And down in Osaka, where I used to live, uh, uh, rather had split my time between Tokyo and Osaka, uh, Makombu is the preferred. Uh, if you go to an elegant um, restaurant, it's likely that the broth that um, you sipped and said, wow, what's this, was made with Ibishiri Kombu. Um, and if you went to a temple vegetarian um, meal, it's likely that it was daosu kombu. Uh, each of them have distinctive um, sort of flavor profiles and behave a little bit differently. Um, but basically all kombu needs to be slowly extracted um, and uh, not actually brought to a boil just before uh, the boil. Uh, one way of, of recognizing that when you're cooking with it is when you begin to see bubbles starting to break on the surface around the edge of the rim of your pot. Um, and then that's probably the right temperature. In, in Celsius, it's about 70, 75. Um, and that's when all of the beauty in, in, the, in the kombu and the kelp is allowed to uh, come out into the liquid and you get this lovely broth. Um, there are other uh, kombutsu that also go into making stock things, uh, primarily dried fishes. Uh, katsobushi is, is probably the most commonly used and the flakes already made, the, the fushi. Um, and they provide a smoky, wonderful, uh, I call it the bacon of the sea, <laughs> sort of a, a smoky uh, element uh, to any stock that's made with it. Uh, for those who are uh, vegetarian or, or vegan and don't wish to use um, any fish products, um, shiitake mushrooms can create a gorgeous stock, uh, deeply um, uh, foresty, uh, woodsy, um, and uh, enhances the flavor of so many other foods that are that are cooked with it. Um, oh, one of the other fishes um, is niboshi, or uh, it's it's used primarily down in the Kansai area, and certainly uh, in Shikoku, where my husband was from, and where I 
had my first Japan experiences, uh, it becomes also known as Idiko. It became uh, a very important um, contributor to, to many stocks uh, that we used. Um, but purely vegetable stocks too, Kiriboshi uh, Daikon gives off um, a lovely, rather sweet um, stock. So if you're using it to simmer other things, you can cut back on your sugar or eliminate sugar um, entirely to balance soy sauce that might be used in simmering with it because the stock itself is so uh, sweet on its own. Uh, Kampyo, which is gourd, um, one of my favorites because it's so versatile. Um, it can be anything made into an addictively good dried chip uh, to nibble on, um, to making an elegant tie to hold other things together. Um, and it's also uh, that sort of innocuous um, brown strip in narrow sushi rolls uh, called kampyomaki or, or norimaki. Um, and uh, kampyo also produces a lovely broth. You need to make sure that the kampyo was dried naturally and not with chemicals. Um, and you can look at the back of the label to, to check that one out. Um, but it also gives a, a fairly sweet, not quite as sweet as, as the um, uh, daikon one, but a very sweet flavor. And if you're looking to cut back on mm -hmm. um, sugar and meeting, it's a choice that you should probably think about. Mm. Okay, so we're going to get into the each item, like as many as that we can, because okay. there's so much to uh, cover. Right. So a uh, couple things before we do that. So uh, we had a conversation, listeners, on episode uh, 131, 130, 131. Um, Elizabeth extensively talked about kombucha that was used in making Japanese traditional dashi stock. So uh, if you're interested, just go to uh, episode 131. And also... Um, I mean, the uh, Elizabeth's sweet uh, first yeah. experience in Japan. Let's summarize in episode 18 how she <laughs> visited Japan and uh, met her husband at the host family. That was a very romantic story. So that's another thing <laughs> that really fun to listen to. And uh, so, and then you mentioned kombu. Kombu, of course, is the major source of uh, dashi stock flavors, but they come majority, the vast majority, like 90% comes from Hokkaido. And right. then interesting that you mentioned different types of different flavors. It's almost like, you know, like a wine from Bordeaux, from Burgundy to, it's like right. a vineyard, depending on which part of Hokkaido. So once you get into that, it's also like, oh, you can do this comparison of Hidaka kombu to Raus kombu, and also texture is different. And uh, that yes. determines how you cook it. So it's a whole rabbit hole waiting for you, <laughs> kombu lovers. Yes. Um, right. And finally, so you mentioned the dried niboshi. Uh, right. Niboshi is a tiny kind of anchovies. And uh, I, whenever I travel um, on airplane, right. I don't want to eat much of airplane food. So <laughs> I just put it in my bag. And when I get hungry, instead of keep eating a lot of nuts and chocolate, I have some niboshi. And uh, it really keeps your hunger in control and you feel good because it's full of calcium, protein, and you feel actually healthier. So that's uh, my trouble. And it's, and it's a nice chewy texture. 
dehydration of the um, shiitake really concentrates all of the flavor and all of the nutrients as well. Um, so all of the positive nutrients that, that were in there are going to be more concentrated as well. Mm, right, so not just a flavor, it's healthy right. as well. Right. right. So let's just dive into actual items because I think okay. majority of our listeners are still like, what, what? <laughs> so what kind of kombucha can be used in their own kitchen? So I would like to start with uh, kanso wakame, um, okay. so dried wakame. And uh, okay. this is uh, the style of my summer salad. So <laughs> what is kanso wakame or dried wakame? Um Wakame is a sea vegetable. It's not a weed. Um, when it is harvested, it is briefly dipped in boiling water, and that's where the bright green color comes from. If you see wakame as it comes out of the ocean, it's brown, reddish brown. Um, but it turns bright green, and then it is dried naturally. Uh, once it... it once it has been packaged, it could be either in long strands or it could already be little pieces. Um, it expands to approximately three times the size that it looks like when it comes out of the package. So when you're putting it in a, your glass jar and you see a couple of sort of shriveled little pieces at the bottom and you're wondering, is that really going to be enough? The answer is probably yes. Uh, a tablespoon of dried wakame will give you mm, slightly more than a half a cup, um, or a half to two thirds of a cup of, of wakame once it's softened. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to uh, cluster my recipes into soups and salads for wakame. Um, I find that uh, it doesn't need a whole lot of cooking. Uh, once it's been softened, it can be dressed in a number of different um, uh, salad dressings. It can be mixed with um, lettuce. It can be mixed with other vegetables. Um, in the summer, I, I love to do a karashi su miso, which is a mustard, uh, vinegar, and miso sauce um, that I think is just fabulous um, and especially refreshing in, in hot sticky weather um, when it gets a bit cooler and I'm looking forward to those days it isn't hasn't gotten cooler yet in in Tokyo um, I might use another kind of miso uh, with it a darker red miso uh, perhaps sweetened with a little bit of medium or sugar um, as a dip um, and uh, eat it just as as is um, in soups, I will often put it at the bottom of a bowl and pour soup on top of it so that it doesn't get sort of overcooked. Um, I like the texture of uh, wakame after it's been softened. And um, I, I, I personally do not like the softer texture that you get from cooking it further. Mm, right. So, yeah, I think uh, the texture is a good point because... Um, when you see it, it's very pretty thin. It's not like kombu right. that's thick. And um, yeah, somehow I found this uh, convenient package at the grocery store, mm -hmm. Japanese grocery store. And uh, it was a beautiful, like a mixture of different colored um, right. and a very inexpensive makame. So I bought it and then I was like, great. And then I put some in the bowl and it, mm -hmm. it grew 10 times. It was written 10 <laughs> times, <laughs> okay. overflowing. But then happily, you know, you can have, you can use a, 
vinegar and, you know, like quick salad, soy sauce and vinegar. It's so refreshing in the summertime. Right. And you feel just so good. And also, I, I think it's a great idea to put in a, a miso soup because the umami multiplies with the miso and wakame. Right. So, and also with, with noodle uh, dishes, um, especially uh, soup noodles, uh, mm. uh, it certainly can be used with ramen, but also with udon. Um, I love the combination of wakame and uh, ume, umeboshi, uh, mm. with udon and also with somen, the thinner white noodles. Right. Yeah, so uh, it's a, like again, kombucha is another kind of tip or like secret weapon you can add deep in the flavor just by throwing it in because it's so easy to rehydrate. Yes. And the wakame is just one of the most handiest and kombucha. Right. So, right. So, okay. So, next one, we have uh, hijiki. Right. So, that's hijiki is, uh, I'm sure listeners who have been to Japanese izakaya, and hijiki with, um, you know, the fried tofu and the mixture of the sweet and soy sauce, that's like the classic uh, izakaya right. item. So, so what is hijiki and uh, how do you use it? <laughs> okay. So hijiki is also a sea vegetable. It's not a weed. It's a vegetable. Um, and uh, when it gets harvested, um, there are long, I guess you call them fronds. They look almost like um, a branch on a tree. And you'll often see a hijiki package as either mei hijiki, which are the little teeny tiny bud pieces, or naga hijiki, which are the longer pieces. Um, so if you think of a, a, uh, a branch that has uh, smaller uh, branches coming off of it, as it gets dried and processed, it usually gets put through a sieve that separates out the longer strands from the smaller bits and pieces. And they can be cooked and used exactly the same way. But I don't know about other people, but I tend to use mehijiki if the final way I'm going to be serving it is small, like if it's going to be used in an obento, if it's going to be in a tiny little dish. Um, that way I don't have to cut it. I can use it just as is. And um, I prefer to use nagahijiki when I'm looking to present volume in a larger bowl. <laughs> um, and depending upon which size of the hijiki is, it's the exact same plant. It's just a different part of the plant. Um, I might cut the length of the carrots or the fried tofu uh, differently um, to match it. Um, again, with, with naga hijiki, I'll then to do sort of julienne um, carrots that are longer strips and maybe a green vegetable, also green beans, and cut them on the diagonal and make it a, a more colorful uh, or arrangement. Um, I always make a lot of hijiki. I love the stuff, but I make a lot of it because it will keep for two, three days after it's been made. And um, the second use, if you will, is mixed in a tofu sauce, shirai. Um, that's also a wonderful dish. Um, and almost inevitably, I will be using... Um, after I, after I make hijigi as a nimono, as, as a summit dish, I will, one or two days later, be serving it in a tofu sauce. So um, so next one, what is kampyo? 
Okay. Kampio is a gourd. Um, it's rarely eaten as a gourd. Uh, rather, it gets shaved into ribbons. Um, and those ribbons get cooked into a number of different dishes. Um, the the size of the ribbon, the width of it can change from package to package. And um, if when you look at the package, it looks very white as opposed to slightly um, brown, uh, it's probably been bleached. Uh, check on the back of the package. And if it's been bleached, that means you should not be using the um, liquid from softening it. Uh, you can still eat the kampia without any problem at all, but I would not recommend trying to use that softening liquid uh, as a broth. Uh, only if for those bleached. that have not, right, only for those that have not been chemically dried or bleached. Right. Yes. So kampio, uh, probably most likely uh, listeners never heard of it, but if you go to sushi, traditional Japanese sushi restaurant, it's most likely you can find kampio bowl. And um, like when I was little, I was too too young to eat spicy wasabi sushi. I would right. look for kampio bowls <laughs> because it's a sweet and uh, crunchy and it's like a great mouthfeel and it has a good, lots of umami. I think that Japanese can mm. get educated uh, about umami on your tongue through those dried items, I think. I Now I think that way. I, I, I think so too. It's, a, it's an early um, experience and I think it's a memorable one. And uh, it forms a, a sort of a background uh, for future flavors that you're going to be tasting. And um, I certainly think it contributes to an appreciation of um, umami, uh, mm. being introduced to it at a very young age. Um, kampyo, the kind that's done in the sushi rolls, has usually been, after it's been softened, it's been simmered in a slightly sweet um, soy broth. And that's where it gets that brown color from and the sweet flavor. And again, it has a, uh, it's soft, but it's got a nice chew to it. Um, a very satisfying mouthfeel. Mm, right. So I heard it's more popular in the Kanto region, which is surrounded in Tokyo, Tokyo region. And, uh, and if you go to Osaka region, it's not as popular because I think sushi was born in, in Kanto, in Tokyo. So um, there's some regional differences. But okay, so um, the next one is kiriboshi daikon. You mentioned earlier uh, that's right. your favorite. So what is special about it? Well, it was certainly the first experience that I had with it. Um, so daikon is, is a radish, and um, it does get dried out and uh, naturally, but it can also be uh, dried on purpose. And most often, it's um, shreds that you will see um, in packages that are, are for commercial sale. Um, people who make it... Uh, themselves will use scraps from after peeling daikon to use it for other things. Um, for several years, I uh, made a lot of kombutsu myself, um, but that was actually, I used a, an electric machine to help me uh, dry things out because Japan is so humid. And I finally decided I couldn't justify all the electricity that was being used um, for that. Um, when I'm able to dry it naturally, I will. Um, but 
urban Tokyo life, it, it's it's hard. I end up buying most of my kiriboshi daikon. Um, it's a uh, sort of the classic for me is again with carrots and uh, probably fried tofu. Um, sometimes I will soften it with a piece of kombu at the same time. And then I will take that kombu and actually with scissors, because kombu can get to be slippery and harder to cut with a knife, although you could do it with the tip of a very sharp knife. I will cut it into uh, thread thin uh, pieces and cook them together um, with the uh, kiriboshi daikon to make uh, a nimono. As a matter of fact, I had that for dinner tonight. <laughs> mm, nice. So, so. By the way, daikon, Japanese daikon is big and thick and long. And uh, or Japanese people call a young girl's big fat legs the daikon legs. <laughs> yes, that's the same. <laughs> I know, I know, especially since um, colored uh, tights were very popular in the 1960s. And I had been called daikon ashi on many occasions. <laughs> yes. right. um, that's funny uh, but there's another thing like usually American uh, vegetables like eggplants right. are bigger than Japanese uh, native eggplants but right. in the case of daikon that's the opposite it's huge and right. juicy and it's not like you know something you process and it kind of dries out it's very juicy that's why you know you right. have to dry spend a lot of work and time and probably energy to dry but um, it's really tasty and concentrated flavor and because it's daikon it goes so well with other um, flavors like you mentioned carrots sweetness right. and uh, dried uh, tofu that has yeah. rich fat right the, the other way I cook it is with um, bacon and or um, chicken uh, and shred it and cook it together and it's also almost like a main course um, dish. Uh, the vegetable uh, versions will keep longer uh, and be able to be kept in the refrigerator well for four, five, six days. Uh, once you introduce meat to it, it, it tends to be, but I'm not unhappy eating it within two days, but it will not <laughs> keep as long. Right. Mm, right. Okay, so the next one, is fun. Uh, it's kanten. So kanten is similar to agar agar right. and gelatin, and I find it very useful. Uh, so what is kanten and what is the difference between um, agar agar? Um, kanten, again, is a sea vegetable. Um, tengusa, heavenly grass, um, is the source of it. And there are different um, stories, if you will, legends about how it was originally um, discovered or realized and, and put to use. Um, because it's freeze-dried, and I know that sounds very, very modern, but it was a natural freeze-dry. In other words, it was freezing temperatures at night and very dry temperatures during the day. And uh, Nagano Prefecture, which um, is cold, dry um, weather, uh, similar to many places in Northern America, um, was where content first really became um, utilized in, in large measure. Um, and they, when you dry the uh, 
the tengus, it, it turns out to look almost like um, a styrofoam sticks. I, I mean, mm. it, it sort of doesn't look like it's a food. Um, and it's, it is still sold in stick form, although more likely today it's going to be powdered. And the powdered form is easier to use. But um, the sticks can be either fairly thick blocks um, or they could be more narrow threads. Um, it also has nearly zero calories and is often um, added. There, there's content that can be eaten just as is. It's a little crunchy. It's a, a little chewy um, and shredded and mixed in salads. Uh, and it's sort of a filler. There's another version that can be cooked with rice um, that will uh, reduce the caloric intake of the same bowl of rice because part of it is content uh, as well. But most often content is cooked on purpose uh, to make a kind of an aspic or uh, a gelatin. Mm, right. And uh, I also wanted to see the difference between gelatin and here is the thing. So content, right. it can be superior to gelatin because of no taste or odor. Uh, instead of gelatin, animal source. Right. And uh, it sits more firmly than gelatin and also sits at room temperature. Yes. And it can stay firm at the warmer temperature. So that's why you can find beautiful Japanese-style jelly sweets, like at the tea ceremony or Japanese beautiful lavashi right. shops served at room temperatures. So. Yeah, the, the I'm not familiar with the specifics of the chemistry and the chemical differences, but also certain things will gel with content like fresh pineapple that gelatin will never gel. Um, but the one fruit that I had difficulty with, and I, I have memories of um, doing a demonstration and the content never gelled, was with key limes down in Florida. So oh. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure why key limes. I've done it with sudachi and other kinds of limes and never a problem, but um, waited and waited and was duly embarrassed to discover that indeed the content <laughs> did not set at, at all uh, during the demonstration. But otherwise, it's wonderful because it does gel at room temperature, which means you can put it in an obento and it's also not going to weep the way um, gelatin often does. And of mm. course, it's, it's vegan. It's, it's, uh, it's not an animal product. Right. And also, content is not as translucent as agar-agar, no. but it solidifies very firmly. So there's a trade-off. Right. And also, um, you know, texture between content and agar-agar, um, yeah. there's a difference. And agar-agar has a melting soft right. texture, whereas content has firmer mouthfeel. It's kind of like... Uh, I think it's a fi uh, higher fiber content, which is good for your digestion too. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, you can't play with these three players, content, agar-agar, and gelatin, but content mm -hmm. is pretty advantageous in many occasions when it comes to texture and temperature. Right. It's great to have um, in the kitchen. Um, and, again, the powdered form is, is easier. So the sticks, when you want to use them to cook into an aspic, for example, you have to soak them, you have to squeeze them, you have to simmer them. Um, it's a fairly um, 
multi-stage process to be able to cook with it. The powdered form merely needs to be soaked in a small amount of, of water, just enough to sort of moisten it, um, and then cooked and, and stirred into whatever flavored um, liquid you're going to be using for your, for your aspic. So it's much easier to use. And it can often be used with other foods um, to help them become slightly firmer. Um, I don't do a whole lot of baking or, or confectionery making, but it's a very important ingredient for many confections. Mm, like uh, what kind of examples do you have? Um, well, as you pointed out, for the tea ceremony sweets, um, there are many that are... Uh, primarily um, content, but there's also a snack that I happen to personally love. Um, it's made with dried persimmons and content, um, and uh, they're wonderful little chewy snacks, um, and you're cooking them all together. It forms sort of a, uh, a loaf, and they can be cut into smaller pieces and um, enjoyed um, almost like caramels. Um, but mm. the flavor is persimmon, and it's it's quite wonderful. So it's used in a lot of um, confections, candies uh, here in Japan, and I suspect could be could be a sort of a secret ingredient um, for similar textured foods that are um, uh, served outside Japan as well. A lot mm. of people have discovered um, content, if you will, as as a an option for um, for cooking, but I like to keep it uh, on hand, especially in in the summer, to be able to make um, cool um, sort of the sort of slithery when you're eating them down your throat um, uh, dishes. Uh, the other is it makes a wonderful um, coffee jelly. Uh, Yes. That, you can, that, you can, that you can form in a coffee cup, and then you can, if you want to pipe some whipped cream on top, you can do that as well. But kohiziri mm. in Japan is a is a popular um, way to use content. Right, it's I, I didn't know that it was so available everywhere in Japan. I didn't know that it was pretty unique in Japan until recently, actually. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so if you, I mean, listeners, if you go to good go to Japanese uh, convenience stores or supermarkets, right. they definitely always have coffee jelly. Right. And uh, their coffee tend to be intense and it's, it's the flavor is just so unique and, uh, and the cream on top, that's right. addictive, sweet. And I have right. to admit, I'm addicted to it. So, all right. And um, yeah, so we've discussed several kombutsu items today and many of which happen to be made with uh, sea vegetables, seaweed, but they are not the only ones. Of course, um, a lot of different kombutsu and of course uh, for kombu, dashi, and katsobushi, bonito, they're all mummy rich and uh, it's unlimited. So yeah, I think hopefully uh, our listeners can discover some of those and try easily at their own kitchen today. So, um, and you have lots of valuable resources about kombucha and everything else on your website and your <laughs> books. So tell us how our listeners can find them. Um, the easiest way to find a catalog of, of suggestions is a post that I put up a couple of days ago uh, to my Kitchen Culture um, blog. So tasteofculture.com is my website. And if you go to the Kitchen Culture tab, um, the current one that's being displayed is indeed on kombutsu. And um, 
once that gets archived, you can always um, do a search on my website uh, for it. Um, it's interesting. The uh, Do you spell it with an M or an N? And I tend to spell it with an M. I also use M for kombu rather than kunbu. The um, actual hiragana could go either way. And depending upon whose book you're reading and who you're talking to, it could be an N or an M for the spelling. Um, I think my website is trained to recognize both, but I do spell it with an M, K-A-M-B-U-T-S-U. And I call them the dried darlings of the Japanese pantry. So it's likely if you do research under any of those words, you're going to be able to come up with it. Um, but what I did was a, a list of um, recipes and whole chapters um, in, my, in my book that are devoted to kombutsu, as well as links to specific ones that are already um, archived on my website. Mm, right. I'm looking at uh, the page Kambutsu you posted on September right. 25th, and uh, it's just beautiful pictures. If your listeners <laughs> had not a visible ideas of what we are talking about today, it's beautiful, beautiful pictures and recipes. And uh, I really realized Kambutsu are very healthy too. So yes, yeah. Um, right. All of all of the nutrients that would be in the fresh item are more concentrated. So all of the, um, the, many of them have a great deal of calcium, certainly a lot of fiber um, and other trace minerals as well. Um, and uh, all of that has been sort of concentrated and locked into the kombutsu. So um, they're not being lost when you're um, cooking them later. Mm, right. Okay, so where can we find your updates online and on social media? Uh, in addition to your website. Okay, so uh, on my website also is a, is a way to easily click into the uh, Facebook group uh, that I run, which is the Kitchen Culture Cooking Club. Um, and I also have a tab for that on my, uh, on my website. And once a month, I try to keep to that schedule once a month, I will post a new project that's related to um, the, whatever topic I've chosen for the um, Kitchen Culture blog. Um, I haven't posted one specifically for kombutsu, I'm, uh, but the last newsletter that I did was about Kampyo, and uh, you can also find that on my website and a whole page devoted to Kampyo um, and recipes about it and also the history of it all sorts of information um, about that. So probably I'd suggest that people start at my website and all of the other uh, links, including once this recording is available, I'll list it under my podcasts <laughs> and they can right. listen to it again um, there. So that's a good place, I think, to, to start. Also, my Twitter account, I, I try to, to post to both. Um, I'm not quite as active as I probably should be. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody else. Right. <laughs> so, right. But again, the website is uh, tasteofculture.com. Right. Word. Right. So at the bottom, there's link to, uh, links to Facebook and Twitter. So, right. yeah. So thank you so much. And uh, I really you. enjoyed another 10th episode with you. Thank and, you. And uh, yeah, look, looking forward to the next one. So we have to discuss what to discuss next time. Right. Right. 
All right. So thank you so much. And thank you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at Japanese at the Heritage Reunion Network.org or akikotema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at Heritage Reunion Network.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Spanish is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.